Welcome to the Open Door Church podcast. Our prayer is that you will be encountered and encouraged by the Holy Spirit and challenged by the word of the Lord. May the Lord bless you and stir faith as you listen to this week's message. I want to share with you out of the book of Revelation today. Thursday night was a lot of fun for me, Stan. Thank you for having me. It was uh, one of those things where uh, nostalgia might be a word that I would use there, but I feel like it's not sufficient. But there was very much a a bringing back to what God was doing in my heart and in my life when I first came to Jesus as a a 15-year-old kid. And the things that we were praying for, there was a sense of urgency and expectancy and faith that God was doing something in our community. And I'm so grateful that that's being fostered there, but it's overflowing into each and every church in this community. And I believe that there is hope for Pagosa to come. Amen? Okay. Well, cool. That really doesn't have a ton to do with where I'm going. The book of Revelation was written by a guy named John. He was exiled on the island of Patmos for preaching the gospel. And in John, or not in John, but in Revelation 1, uh, verses 10 and 11, we, we read this from John regarding this book of Revelation. In verse 10, it says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. What you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. And so what we have here is John encountering Jesus Christ, the risen Lord, who uh, kind of brings him into this powerful vision where he gives the whole book of Revelation to him, but he begins this uh, this, this crazy vision, this crazy revelation, re- revelation with uh, a very specific message to seven different churches that each receive a letter at the very beginning of the book. This is found in Revelations chapter 2 and 3. And I don't have plans to go through all of these letters. We've done that in the past, but uh, I really want to focus in uh, on just a few things out of Christ's message to the Ephesian church uh, out of Revelation chapter 2. But that's a, that's a little bit of a backdrop as we enter into Revelation chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 1 through 7, and then we're going to talk about them and give uh, the Lord a little bit of room to do what he wants to do this morning. Amen? Amen. So beginning in verse 1, it says, To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things, remember this is Jesus, he's saying this, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who have said they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored uh, for my namesake and have not become weary. Good job, church in Ephesus. Verse 4, nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place 
unless you repent. But this you have, you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Guys, I come back to this passage of scripture quite frequently. The last time I preached on it was in 2020 uh, during COVID. <laughs> it was one of the first messages I kind of jumped into. We jumped into the book of Revelation uh, when we we're talking about the end of the world because <laughs> everybody was freaking out. And we talked about the seven churches here in the book of Revelation. But uh, I, I continually come back to this particular letter and this particular message to the church in Ephesus quite frequently. In fact, I have a representation of it tattooed on my arm where it says, forget not your first love, um, just as a, as a reminder there. But as often as I read it, as often as I have preached it, I may have preached out of this passage of scripture more than most others. I'd like to think that I've finally grasped and I've gotten a handle on what the Lord is saying here, on his instruction, and that I finally have, have arrived at a place where I'm getting it and I'm putting it into practice and it's really making a difference. And uh, it just seems like it's a continual need for me to be reminded. It's a continual thing for me to come back to this passage of scripture, to, to what the Lord is saying here to the church in Ephesus. And it serves as a continual reminder to me to stay in love. And it's necessary for me to come back to this place. And so as much as you might, uh, might want to check out this morning, you might say, you know what, I've heard this before and I've, I've listened to a message just like this before and I've sat in this place. And I, in fact, Pastor Nate, I've heard you say most of this before. Um, I'm preaching it because I believe it needs to hit my heart again. And I pray that you would allow it to hit yours. Amen? I don't want to fall into the trap of performance-based Christianity, which I feel like so many of us, that's the, that's the allure. That's something that uh, we're attracted to whether we believe it or not, because at least then we have a metric for if we're doing good or if we're not. <laughs> but the reality of it is, is that God doesn't base uh, how well we're doing based solely upon what we're doing. Does that make sense? Because there's a lot of people that are doing a lot of good things whose hearts are far from the Lord. And uh, I believe that for it to be sustained, he wants us close to him. It's interesting here. I want to start with where Jesus starts with this commendation that uh, Jesus gives to the church in Ephesus. Where he says in verse 2, I know your works, your labor, your patience... And that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. That's a good job. Any one of us would be stoked if Jesus said that about us, right? Yes. Yes, you would. I, I would hope so at least. I want Jesus to say these things about me. I really do. I, 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 these are good things. I want Jesus to, to say, I know your works, man, and you're doing a great job. <laughs> this was a church, the church in Ephesus, this was a picture of a church that knew how to get stuff done. 
They were ticking the boxes, man. If you were to visit this church, you might see a lot of activity taking place. You might see them reaching out and outreach to their neighborhoods. They're going on missions trips. They're doing the stuff. They've got the offerings. People are coming in. And they've probably got a coffee cart that's just ripping in the foyer. Like, this is the place. This is the church, right? They had the right knowledge even. They had good doctrine, They were finding out who was liars and people that were saying the wrong stuff. They were chasing them out of town. They they, they desired doctrinal purity. It was something that they were were crushing. They knew how to say the right things. They were doing good. And they weren't growing weary. They were persevering through adversity. Even when everything was going wrong, they were sticking with it. This was... I mean, this is, this is pretty good, right? They knew hardship. They persevered through it. They had grit and determination to do the right thing. I would be sure that they're making Paul proud in this moment. Paul actually encouraged and admonished the church in Ephesus back in the book of Acts. We read in Acts 20, verses 29 through 31, he writes this to the church in Ephesus. He says, For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also, from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. Man, the the church in Ephesus took those words of Paul to heart. They were finding out the false teachers. They were testing those who claimed to be apostles, found them they were not, and chasing them out of town. They They were listening to the instruction that Paul gave. They were doing good in that regard. We know this because Jesus himself says so. Can I tell you, all of that matters not when we get to the very next word. It's this little word, nevertheless. Meaning despite all of that, meaning it doesn't matter in light of all that you've done, nevertheless, I have this against you. You see, their report card was all good and clear. They had straight A's, right? Except for one little area. If, we, if we're, we're going to calculate it, man, they, they got a 9 out of 10, right? They, they, they checked it. They, they knocked it out of the park on most everything. And 9 out of 10, that's still an A, right? Is it? I don't know. When I went to school, like 93% was an A. It was weird, but I think most schools are like 90 to 100% is an A. Is that, is that still how it is? Is anybody in school that can tell me? I forget. Um, right? 90% is still an A? It's an A minus, but it's an A, right? Nobody, I'm not getting any feedback. Nobody knows. <laughs> do they still do grades in school? Like, do you still get A's and B's? <laughs> what? Nobody gets A's. It's a pass or fail? It's everybody pass. Everybody gets an A. <laughs> okay. <laughs> when I went to school, which wasn't that long ago, we had A's. Nine out of ten was an A. And I'd be pretty stoked if I got like a 90%, right? What? been 12 years. It's not that long. (laughs) 12 years for you. 10 for you. I've been here for 12 years. I didn't come right out of high school. 
<laughs> Man, we need to take math again. Can you tell how long we've been out? <laughs> Nine out of ten, I'd be pretty stoked with that, right? Most of us would be like, yeah, we'll take that. But God says none of that other stuff matters unless it's first coming from the place of love. There is never enough that you can do for God to make up for a lack of personal relationship with him. You see, we have to be careful to not get caught up in doing things for God that we forget our primary purpose for existence is to be with him. I think sometimes we get it reversed and we think God's got this primary thing for us to do. And this is especially true for those of us that serve in the ministry where we feel like, man, our whole reason for existence and our reason for being is to preach. Our reason for being is to do ministry, is to make disciples and to do this stuff. And we love that. And God loves that we love that. And he wants us to do that. But it can never take the place of simply being his child. And it's easy for us to fall into that trap that, God, I'm doing so much for you that I don't actually have to spend time with you. But it kind of defeats the purpose, right? <laughs> we got to keep the, the first things first, if you will. You see, works are important. These things, these other nine out of ten things that, that, that Jesus is talking about here, you know, persevering. Figuring out who's a liar, <laughs> doing these good works, it, that they're important, but they're only important if they're properly motivated from the place of relationship. Doing the right thing with the wrong motivation, uh, one, it's not going to last. It'll be temporary. It's not sustainable. It'll still earn you a failing grade before the eyes of the righteous judge, King Jesus. It says, nevertheless, you have left your first love. I like this quote from Charles Spurgeon. He says, a church has no reason for being a church when she has no love within her heart or when that love grows cold. Lose love, lose all. In the New King James, uh, I have this little title above uh, my Bible. I'm holding nothing here like I'm looking at my Bible. My paper Bible is a New King James that I like to read out of, <laughs> and it's on my office desk right now. But uh, all the different, uh, there's like headings or, or, or titles above each of the churches uh, in Revelations two and Revelation 2 and 3, where we see uh, the church in Ephesus actually gets this title of the loveless church. And uh, I have a little bit of a qualm with that, <laughs> a little bit of an issue with that title, because the scripture doesn't say that they didn't love anymore. It's just that they don't love like they used to. And if you read Revelation uh, 2.4, just reading it out of the NLT, and I think I gave that to Adam to put in the back, um, it says it this way. It says, but I have this complaint against you. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. This is, the, this is what Jesus is coming against the church at Ephesus. is saying that you don't love me and you don't love your brother. And you don't love the church. You don't love each other like you used to. And so this idea is, um, how many of you guys know that God expects us to mature? 
there is this idea of spiritual maturity that each day we should be growing in love for God and one another. That's what spiritual maturity looks like, is growing closer to God, growing more in love with Jesus. And if we're doing that, naturally, the only, the only, kind of, uh, the only way this works out is that we actually grow in love uh, for one another at the same time. Uh, I'll break that down here in a little bit, but that, that, that's, that's the way that it works. But here we see them doing so much. We see them doing a lot of work, but their love is growing cold. And instead of growing in love for Jesus and growing in love for one another, it's actually decreasing. And so Jesus comes onto the scene and says, no, this doesn't add up. This isn't right. Something's wrong here. And I think if we were to take honest assessment of ourselves, I think uh, a lot of us could fall into this category where we don't love like we used to where we don't love Jesus like we used to, where we don't love our friends and our neighbors or even our enemies like maybe we once did when we first encountered the Lord. And it's something that's important for us to come back to. You see, you cannot say that you love God and not love his family. You can't really love his family without loving him first. You can't love Jesus and not love his church. You can't love the bridegroom without also loving his bride. This is why I have issues with people that say, you know what, I really love Jesus and I love everything about Jesus, but I really can't stand the church. When you have to recognize Jesus gave his life for the church. (laughs) He gave his life for the bride. And so he comes as a package deal. That's like somebody coming up to me and saying, you know what, Pastor Nate, I really like you, but I can't stand your wife. So I'll be friends with you, but I can't be friends with Kelly. That would never happen. It's typically the reverse. It's flip-flopped. <laughs> People are like, man, Kelly, you're awesome, but man, I just can't put up with Nate. <laughs> We're a package deal, okay? <laughs> so my question for you today is, do you love Jesus like you used to? Like when you first said yes, like when you first heard about his love for you, do you still think that you love Jesus like you did back then? Can you look back on any part of your life and pinpoint a time where you love Jesus more than you do right now? I ask myself this question quite a bit, and I'll be the first to admit to you there have been moments where I've answered that question, yeah, Yeah, there have been seasons where I was far more in love with Jesus than I am right now. I look back and I think think back to when I first gave my life to the Lord and what that looked like where I didn't know much. I didn't have good theology. I didn't have perfect doctrine. I didn't know what it was supposed to look like when I came into the church, if I was supposed to be loud, if I was supposed to be quiet. What uh, I didn't know a lot of things, but man, was I in love with Jesus. And there have been moments where I've asked myself this question and I've looked back and said, man, wouldn't it be great just to go back? Wouldn't it be great just to to love Jesus like I did when I was single and I had all that time? How you answer that today, I believe, exposes where your priorities are. Because if you can look back and you can think of a time where you love Jesus more, 
I think it's a sign of misplaced priorities. Thankfully, I I believe that Jesus gives us clear instruction on what to do if we find ourselves in this place. We're going to get to that in a moment, but I want you to know this. If you're answering yes to that question right now, you're in good company and you're in the best place that you could possibly be. Because I believe in the house and the family of God, there is grace for us to love Jesus like we never have before. And that there is provocation uh, that exists amongst this community of believers to love Jesus like we never have before. And he's worthy of it, is he not? I know that the only way that I'm going to get to a place of spiritual maturity, as if you ever arrive, that's not the case. But I know that that only happens in the context of community. That only happens when we're together chasing after the same goals. And I know for me, my passion for Jesus is stirred by being around those that are passionate for Jesus. Amen? They fuel and feed each other. But if we're in this place and there's, there's maybe a sense that passion for Jesus has faded. And I don't, I don't want to make it sound like, man, this is this irrecoverable thing that we can't Uh, come from or or move past because that's not the case. I believe it serves as a warning to us not to to rely just upon the metrics of activity, but rather really take take measurement and really insight into what intimate relationship looks like with the Lord, what our personal relationship looks like with the Lord, because anybody can post on social media, right? In fact, I had somebody that was critiquing me saying, well, man, you're a pastor, but I never see you really post much about Jesus on social media. It's all Jeeps and pictures of your kids, or maybe snowboarding. I was like, man, those are the things I'm passionate about. I don't do social media for everybody else. I do it for me. Um, <laughs> where was I going with that story? There was a clear thought process with me sharing that. Um, anybody can post uh, post pictures and stuff on social media and, you know, pretend that everything's fine and you can have a lot of good church activity, if you will. You can show up here on a Sunday morning, you can put money in the offering plates, you can go on mission trips, you can do the things and still not have healthy relationship with the Lord. I need you to understand this, right? That's what, that's what we continually read when we look back to Matthew chapter 7, which I, I feel like I say every time I preach, but we have people that are before Jesus saying, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all this stuff in your name? And he says, depart from me, I never knew you. It has to come back to relationship and love for Jesus. And so this is, this is where, just coming right out of here, right out of Revelation chapter 2, instruction to the church in Ephesus, we see three things that Jesus instructs this church to do if they're going to continue on and be effective in their ministry. And it's that they would remember, that they would repent, and that they would redo the things that they did at first. I mean, you guys should be impressed with me. I've got alliteration going on here today. This is, this is a big thing for me in a sermon if I'm going to have three points and they even, like, all begin with the same two letters. That's, I feel like a, a milestone, an achievement for me. I don't know if this has ever actually happened before in one of my sermons. But we see here this, uh, in, in Revelation chapter 2, 
beginning in verse 5, he says, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstands from its place unless you repent. Remember. This is where I would invite you to go back to what life was like when you first met Jesus. It says, remember from the height which you have fallen. <laughs> remember what it used to be like. And, and I, I want you to remember what it was like for you. I remember just simply coming into the Lord's presence, not knowing anything about anything. My first time in a church came into a prayer meeting. Um, right after I had given my life to the Lord, I didn't know what to expect. There wasn't somebody really telling me what to do. And I remember just sitting in the corner and listening to, to, to music and really feeling like I connected with the Lord for the first time. And I, I think hours went by and I don't, even, I don't even have recollection of the time there. And, uh, and the, now there's moments and days where uh, I'm in prayer and I look and it's like, man, how has... 30 seconds gone by. I have prayed for the whole world now. <laughs> and thinking like this. But I think back to the times when, you know, he wasn't just, he wasn't impressed with my doctrine, my theological knowledge. He wasn't impressed with the fact that I was an ordained minister of the assemblies of God and I had gone through Bible college and all of these things. I remember just being a broken kid who needed a savior. I remember his gracious love towards me. It's Romans 5.8 that God would demonstrate his love for us while we were still sinners, Christ would die for us. I remember his extravagant mercy and his graciousness towards me. It wasn't my ability to do good. It wasn't me being smart enough to figure it out that earned me a spot at his table. So why would I think that I could keep a spot in his house or keep a spot at his feast based upon doing something? If I didn't get in the door by doing something, I'm not going to stay there by doing something. Does that make sense? And I think some of us have this mentality. You know, we remember the, we remember the grace of God saving us and we might be good theologically with that point, but somehow we feel like we have to earn a spot to stay there in right favor with God. Right favor with God is something that we embrace because he did it, not something that we earn. Does that make sense? And so I remember that. I remember back to, to, to the moment where I gave my life to him. I remember the, the, the early mornings uh, of spending time in prayer and, and, and hot tears coming down my face, praying for, for, for the salvation of those students in my high school genuine brokenness. I, I remember those times. I think back before I had a lot of experience in the church. You know, when I first got saved, people would make fun of me. And I found out later that they were talking behind my back and uh, didn't know this at the time. It really didn't bother me. But I would get so excited during worship, you know, that I would jump during the slow songs and I didn't know that you were supposed to jump during the fast songs and you were supposed to be really quiet during the slow songs. I didn't know that that was a thing at the time, but I just remember being so in love with Jesus. I'd invite you to remember what it was like when you first said yes to him. 
when you first started serving him and you first encountered him and God really became, became personal to you for the first time. Jesus would tell us not just to remember, but to repent. And this isn't primarily talking about emotion here. It's recognizing that something is wrong and needs to change. It's not this command to feel sorry or to really feel anything at all. It means to change your, to, to change your direction, to change your trajectory, to go a different way. It's an urgent, and this is the way that David Guzik says it. He says, it's an urgent appeal for instant change of attitude and conduct before it's too late. I love that definition of repentance here. And it's this word uh, it carries an urgency about it. it. It's that if something doesn't change, all is going to be lost. It's like this idea of a doctor that comes in and gives you this health report and says, you know what, if you don't stop eating a pound of bacon every morning for breakfast, you are going to have a heart attack and die. This is called a vegetable and you need to eat it or you're going to die. This is going to be this, like the mentality. Unless you make changes, it's not going to end well for you. Does that make sense? And God is saying here that you can't continue on this trajectory that repentance will require drastic change of action. It's to go a different direction and to go a different way. And then he'll go on to say to do the things that you did at first. So I combined these and I said redo. I think that works, right? Is redo a word? Probably not. Maybe it is. Redo. Yeah, it's, it's a word, right? I didn't know if it was just like slang or if it was something that was, something that was real. See, I'm not even making stuff up. This is, check it off. Woo. To do the things you did at first. It's literally a call to come back to the basics, to return to simply serving and lovely, loving Jesus. These are the simple things, the things that we never graduate from or grow out of. Can I tell you the secret sauce? If, if there was something to loving Jesus for the long haul, this is going to be a New York Times bestseller. You guys can help me write this. I'll get a publicist, all these things, because I believe I have cracked the code, cracked the code for loving Jesus for the long haul. <laughs> you know, we have all this stuff out there with deconstruction and deconversion and uh, everybody and their mom is an ex-evangelical, right? I think the secret and the key to staying in love with Jesus primarily centers around a few, a few, does anybody have an interpretation for that? Uh, <laughs> I believe it centers around a few key, wow, a few key things. I told you I forgot how to speak. It's been a while. Um, they're not new. They're not revolutionary. You've heard them all before. And I could make an argument about how each of these plays a central part. But if you really want to stay loving Jesus for the long haul, and you really want to love Jesus more tomorrow than you did today, and the next day, and the next day, and the next day, and you want to increase in this love for God and for your neighbor, I think there's a few simple things that you can do. 
It's the same few things that the church and that Jesus has been instructing his followers to do since its inception. And it's to read the Bible, it's to pray, and it's to fellowship with other believers. I know that's groundbreaking and you should put that on Twitter right now. You will not believe what my pastor just told me to do. It's revolutionary and it's groundbreaking. But it's important. You see, I think we have this idea that spiritual maturity often looks like this extravagant thing. We put people up on pedestals that do these miracles and have these massive ministries. And we, we have in our mind that that's a picture of what a mature Christian looks like. And someday I'm going to operate spectacularly, spectacularly woo, words, uh, like them someday. <laughs> and I've, I've often shared this. My definition of spiritual maturity is actually just doing the simple things, the elementary things consistently. Can I tell you the mark of a spiritually mature Christian is one that can consistently pray and read the Bible and fellowship with other people. It's not that hard. Maybe I should say it's not that complicated. I think it's difficult to do it consistently day in and day out, but it's worthwhile. I wrote this, reading your Bible, praying and fellowship, these have and always will be the framework for cultivating love for Jesus. Want to love Jesus more? Do these things more. Pretty simple and straightforward. I, I wrote this quote, though, by David Guzik, and I think this is just in, in conjunction with what we're talking about here. It makes so much sense. He says that Satan does a masterful job in creating a sense of general dissatisfaction with the simple first works. He says Christians will run after almost every new strange method or program for growth and stability. Our shortened attention spans make us easily bored with the truest excitement and sometimes we will do almost anything except for the first works. What I'm talking about here, the first works are these simple things, these simple building blocks of relationship with Jesus, of spending time in prayer, of reading the word and being in fellowship with other believers that are chasing after the same thing. I'd be like, duh, Pastor Nate, I already knew that. I know it too. Sometimes I need to be reminded. Thank you for listening to this week's message. If you want to check out more of our messages, find us on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube. Just search Open Door Pagosa. Our ministry is made possible by the faithful generosity of people just like you. If you were blessed by this morning's message and want to partner with what the Lord is doing in Pagosa Springs, find us at opendoorpagosa.com. Here you can give and stay connected with everything we are doing as a church.